This morning while I was driving, I saw a restored Land Rover. Man, it was beautiful. And I imagine that the individual who owned this, before they restored it, they had to make a decision. They had to make a choice. Is this vehicle being that I have, is it, is it worth being restored or should I just junk it? Today is 4th of July. We are celebrating Independence Day. And I think there's a lot of Americans that are asking that exact same question. They believe that our nation is become to a point where it either needs to be restored or it needs to be junked. And so it leaves a lot of people wondering what our future is. But then I think there's a small percentage of Americans who believe that if we're going to junk it, the only way that America, and in fact, not just America, but the world is going to be able to thrive again is if we just literally start all over. So they hope that there will be some intervention by some divine being to bring about this new reality. This being, many of them see as being Jesus. For many Christians, Jesus is the answer and that Jesus will come again. You are listening to Beatitudes Worship Podcast, and that is a subject that we will be looking at this morning. My normal sidekick isn't here. She's uh, just taking it easy right now, a deserved break. But fortunately for us, we have the amazing Ken Nyman. Ken Nyman graduated from Harvard Law School, grew up at an Episcopal church, and then came to Phoenix where... Over the last 45 years, he spent 24 years here in Phoenix as a lawyer in civil litigation. Ken, thank you so much for taking your time on a Sunday morning, waking up early, grabbing a cup of coffee, and joining us here. You're welcome. It's good to be here, I think, so far. So far? (laughs) So over the period of time, just a quick question before we transition here. Uh, we were talking before we became on. You, you grew up Episcopalian, but this whole idea of a second coming was not one that you heard a lot about growing up, apparently. It just wasn't a topic of conversation. Uh, it just wasn't important to my family, and it wasn't important to me. So w- when you saw the world, wh- where was your hope? When you saw things kind of beginning to decline growing up, where did you see your sense of hope at that? I didn't see things beginning to uh, decline. Oh. I was I was um, in school in the late fifties, early sixties. Everything was hunky dory. Hunky dory. We were in control of the world. Everything looked good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just getting better every day. Wow. And things things were rolling. Wow. Well, we will come back to that as your perspective if it's shifted over the last few decades. But now we're going to take a small break, and we will be right back. Following World War II, a curious religious expression developed among primitive peoples in the South Pacific, notably in New Guinea. Anthropologists 
have called this religious expression the cargo cults. It, it's a thing. If you Google it, you'll find it. Well, apparently during that war, one impenetrable jungles were briefly touched by modern civilization. Military access to these islands was necessary. Temporary landing strips for aircraft, therefore, were created. Simp supply depots were erected. Now, for the primitive people, this was all a mystery. They had never seen anything like this. Great birds coming from the heavens to deliver the most glorious of gifts. Well, to ensure tranquil relations with these people, the military shared from their supply of food and material, and the life of these aboriginal peoples was forever changed. Their expectations were enhanced, and then, as quickly as it came, it all ended. The great birds from heaven went away and came no more. Gifts, as from the gods, ceased to arrive. The jungle began to beat back the brief marks of civilization. And in the aftermath, a new and strange religion developed among these peoples and continues even to today, the cargo cults. They venerate the relics and the great heavenly birds. They turn broken aircraft parts into shrines and worship before them. They work diligently at holding back the jungle, though the landing strips become more decrepit. They have created a liturgy of prayer and a theology of expectation. Again, they are called the cargo cults. And surely we can at least understand this in some way. Times have turned tough for them. Some recall when things were better. The older persons have passed on their, to their children and grandchildren who keep this faith, faith alive. Marvelous stories about how the gods once brought them gifts. Cargo, cargo birds, they believed, will come again. And so they live in this anticipation of this celestial moment. But right now, they feel powerless, helpless, poverty-stricken. Day in and day out, they carry on a strange ritual in which they pray, Come again! Come again! Now, is it too wide of the mark to compare this curious new religion with the centuries-old religion of Christians? who have so often used Jesus' name and prayed in the same way, come again. You see, very like those aboriginals in New Guinea, there are many who are unhappy with the world just now. And because of the state of the world, many believe the end of the world is near and Jesus will come again and snatch his followers up into the air to be with him. So here's my question. Is this idea held by many Christians just another sophisticated cargo cult? Or is this idea of a little return of Jesus legitimate? Personally, I am not comfortable anymore with the idea of a literal second coming. And that's for the following reasons. First, that very phrase, second coming, 
you can't find it in the New Testament. For another reason, those who lay heavy emphasis on this matter, they build their support around a literal and wooden reading of the Bible. For still others, they pierce together a whole series of passages, some of which are plainly, if you read them carefully, they contradict each other. And what discomforts me the most out of all of these reasons is that the Jesus that is pictured as coming again in a way that is utterly dislike the one that I read about in the Bible. The portrait drawn for us by these fundamentalist types is, is not of the loving and compassionate friend he once was. It is rather of a Jesus who becomes a fierce warrior, ready to bend the world to his will, eager to subdue evil, and by evil means of force and violence. For me, such an image of Jesus is utterly uncharacteristic of the one who was birthed at Bethlehem and who died on a Roman cross praying, forgive them, they know not what they do. And yet, I have to be honest with you, Despite my discomfort concerning a literal, physical return of Jesus, I must admit there is much of the New Testament which does speak of Jesus coming return again. So where does this idea originate? Did it originate with Jesus or his followers? Or was it a combination of both of them? Let me see if I can answer that for you. Concerned with the end of the world, it first appears in the Jewish tradition as a way of coping with their despair and their decline of hope. Now, that despair was born after a foreign nation called the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, Israel. And the defeat for the Jews dispersed the citizens of the northern kingdom into the DNA pools of the Middle East, never to be isolated, identified, or heard of again. These people are often referred to today as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Now, for the Assyrians, once they destroyed the northern kingdom, they went south. And they also made the remaining Jewish state called Judah subject to them and inaugurated a process of collecting levies. Now, this collection of monies left the Jews in poverty and allowed hopelessness to become these people's daily bread. It was out of that hopelessness that the Jews began to both to dream of God's restoration and to envision exactly what would occur at the end of history when the kingdom of God would be established. This hope also fed dreams of a deliverer, a Messiah, who would come, who would reestablish the Jewish nation, who would restore the Jewish throne, and finally usher in the kingdom of God. They would be free of all their oppressors. Over time, as one oppressive nation followed the next, these future expectations became deeply etched within their Jewish beliefs. 
And it was into these beliefs, these circumstances, that Jesus was born and that he lived. At some point, at some point after Jesus was no longer physically present on earth, something occurred. An experience that cannot be described. But this experience caused his followers to identify Jesus with that promised Messiah of of old. And immediately, these into-the-world images from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, they were wrapped around Jesus. And as a result, the gospel material in the New Testament was designed not to necessarily describe the exact things that Jesus said and did, but to watch various images to him to demonstrate their belief that he was the Messiah. Well, time passed. And as time passed, it became obvious that neither the life nor the death of Jesus had established the kingdom of God. So echoes in the teaching of Jesus appeared suggesting that since he didn't do it while he was here on earth, that he would come again. He would come again to complete the messianic task, the task that would be restoration for the world. 2,000 years have now passed, and the kingdom has not yet been established. Jesus, the Messiah, has not yet returned. Now, whether Jesus will literally return again or whether the world is near its end, we have no business wasting our time in such futile speculation. I believe our task has to do with what is happening all around us, what is happening right now here on earth. You see, the tragedy of the cargo cult people in New Guinea is not that they are wholly mistaken. Great birds, in fact, did once come out of heaven into those wondrous, with those wondrous gifts. And they may come again. But these people have put their lives on hold. They mostly just sit around waiting. They expend their energies keeping relics and caring for them and worshiping them. William Marston, a psychologist, inquired of 3,000 individuals, and he asked them, what have you to live for? He was astonished to find that 94% were simply enduring the present moment. They were waiting. They were always waiting, waiting for something else waiting for their children to grow up and leave home, waiting for a better job, waiting for the weekend or the next vacation, waiting to retire, and then waiting to die. So what happened to the cargo cult people in New Guinea? They have stopped living in the real world. And what happens to religious folks who become preoccupied with the end of the world? They often stop dealing with the world as it really is. They withdraw. They attach less and less importance to the task of working to make the city a safe place in which to live. 
learning from persons of diverse views, and learning to live alongside those same individuals, caring about the hurt and hungry people, and about their future, engaging in the long struggle for peace. In his book, Civilization, Lord Kenneth Clark speaks of civilization as being very, very fragile. It can easily be destroyed. Its enemies are not outside, but rather they're within. And they come in two forms, fear and hopelessness. That fear can be fear of war, invasion, plague, famine, world's end, so that it is no longer worthwhile to rethink or think about the distant future. They lose hope. They lose hope in their system, their future, and eventually in themselves and others. And so they look to something or someone outside of themselves, perhaps God. But more than likely, it's a man on a white horse who will save them. That is why last things are better left a mystery, not our primary concern. What should be our concern is how we live our lives, how we build the world by doing our little bit. These need to be our concern. That's why simple things of the daily round are important. Our work, our play, our politics, and even our faith. There is an old film about a man who each evening was given the next day's newspaper. Such foresight made him immediately wealthy and instantly famous. Then, on a particular Tuesday, he received Wednesday's newspaper, whose headlines read, Famed Forecaster of Future Killed Body Found in Hudson River. That night, he barricaded himself in his hotel room, but he did open the door to what he thought was room service, only to be robbed of his wallet and his money by a stranger. Later that night, it was the stranger's body which was found in the river, and the police mistakenly identified him as the man whose wallet was found in his possession. The end of the tale was told thus. This man never again wanted to see tomorrow's newspaper today. He decided tomorrow is best left a mystery. He decided to live just today. This story is a reminder of Jesus' words, where he says, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof or that incident from the life of St. Francis, who, when found hoeing in his garden, was asked, what would you do if you knew the world would end this very night? St. Francis replied, well, I think I'd just go right on hoeing my garden. The celebrated novelist of the First World War, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, once wrote, as for the future, your task is not to foresee it, but 
to enable it. And I hope that we are. Yes. One of the favorite things I enjoy about this worship podcast is what we're going to do right now. The boring part is the monologue for me because I practiced it. I mean, I know it. But to be able to actually sit down and listen and talk to another person about it, um, that's what to me is one of the most exciting things. So tell me, what were, what were your thoughts? Because you were able to read this ahead of time and then you were able to hear it now. What, were, what was your reaction? What are your thoughts on this? I had a variety of thoughts. It's uh, it's really an interesting story. The cargo cult phenomenon yeah. is is just really really interesting, and I love the way it dovetails into uh, the biblical prophecies. Um, uh, so it 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 makes a really compelling uh, uh, sermon. Had, had you ever good. heard of the cargo cults before? I had I had heard them a, a long time ago on um, uh, something on PBS, uh, okay. a brief something, and uh, it kind of surprised me that that something like that could exist. But um, but I hadn't heard of it a lot. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever heard of them, and I cannot imagine what that was like for them to live with this expectation and then growing up, not even knowing the reality of that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, uh, it seems really, really unique. And then you reflect a little bit and realize that cargo cults are pretty common in, in the rest of civilization as well. That, that, I mean, in its early forms, uh, Marxist Leninism was, a cargo mm. cult. Eventually, capitalism was going to inevitably, inevitably and inexorably uh, morph into a stateless, classless society where uh, the workers owned the means of production and the workers weren't simply means of production, that they were unalienated individual persons. The same, the same with Ayn Randianism uh, or Doug Duceyism where, uh, you know, eventually if we just eliminate as much government as possible and the free play of individual comp competition will lead us to the promised land of a bigger and brighter so you're future. Saying, you're saying that these cults or these myths exist far more than just in religion. I think a lottery system is a, an example of a cargo cult there in you a go. very simple way. But, yeah, I, I was... Uh, I was a member of a cargo cult when when uh, they were sending out big checks the last uh, earlier this year and late last year. Those things. I mean, they didn't alter my 
my way of life too much because I'm retired, but but they, uh, you know, you look forward to them, but there are people who do look forward to those things. I, I just think uh, Make America Great Again um, mm. is a cargo cult. It's, it's eventually this, there's a, there's a character in Cat in a Hot Tim, Tin Roof, uh, the Burl Ives character, Big Daddy. And uh, he's the old uh, monarch of a big ranch. And everybody kowtows to him and just gives him everybody everything he wants. Because eventually he's going to, he's going to make everybody happy, especially when he dies. But, um, but he's, a, he's an autocrat. And uh, there, there are just a lot of people waiting for that big autocrat to come and, and, and take us to paradise. That is fascinating, Ken. I, I literally, that, these ideas you just shared have, did, have, did not cross my mind this last week. I think in some ways you could, you know, the, the MAGA movement, movement, I mean, there, there's still talk that the past president will come again. And maybe even before the next election, yeah. he'll be restored. And if not, then in 2024, we will have the second coming of the president and will bring about a greater nation. Yeah, I, th I think it's there. There's, there's a, a, a phrase that Charles Taylor uses in uh, the secular age. He's a Montreal philosopher um, who talks about... Uh, Providence surrogate that mm. we use Providence surrogates. We find we find surrogates for the idea of God that are going to um, take us to the to a promised land. And one of the big ones in the early 19th century and on into the early 20th century, probably still, is scientism. Is the idea that mm. progress now that we're a technological people. Technology is just going to pull us into a uh, a world that's going to take care of our, all our problems, and so I, I just think there are a lot of cargo cults out there, and um, and it's good to be reminded that the the Bible is not the only yeah. uh, promised land that's promised to us. What do you think it is, from your perspective, especially as a lawyer, in all you're dealing with with different um, groups of humanity and different people from different socioeconomic statuses. What do you think it is about humanity that makes us look outside of ourselves for some kind of deliverance, some kind of deliverer, some kind of Messiah, rather than being able just to embrace what is and believing that you're the one that can make the change, you're the one that can make the difference. What do you think it is about humanity? Um, I, I guess I'd correct the, the or I'd, I'd change the question. As a lawyer, the law is sort of transactional. The law assumes we're all on an equal plane. We okay. all have equal rights and that we're, we're dealing with each other as equals and that we've adopted some principles that are going to govern our behavior. So it assumes... The here and now, largely, it's not uh, providential in that respect. It could be, it could serve some providential purposes, but it's not. It's more 
day to day. It's um, here were the rules, and let's but, go from there. But don't you think there were, well, did you see there were moments where your clients looked at you or kind of had this expectation that you would be their messiah, that you would make things right, you would argue their cause and bring about justice or some kind of reparations for them? I've had a long career, and there were a couple of times where my clients wanted me to get a certain result, and uh, and we got a really big result, and they were surprised. They mm. were shocked, and they thought it didn't have anything to do with the law, and, and it did. It was just you uh. needed to know what the cases were, and you needed to know how to marshal the facts. But, um, I, you know, they, they just thought this is just manna from heaven. And no, it's not. It's, it's what you were entitled to. That, to me, is phenomenal. phenomenal. That, to me, is amazing what you just said. Because when you think about it, in some ways, their ignorance of the law allowed them to see this as being some kind of supernatural achievement that yeah. you got for them. And in many ways, these indigenous people when they saw these planes come in, their ignorance of what they were allowed them to see them as being these gifts from God, these amazing phenomena that was brought to them. And in some ways, it seems like in the just the history of humanity, we're always looking for someone or something to do for us that something that we believe we can't do for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's... I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. Um, and I'm pretty well educated. And, mm -hmm. and uh, there, there are a lot of people that just... The whole thing seems pretty magical. And all the particulars of what happens every day seem kind of kind of magical does our, does this innate sense of hope that we have do you think when that is called into question that if we lose confidence in ourselves that makes us more vulnerable to to these cargo cults be it religious political societal um perhaps i i would think it more in terms of of maybe placing too much emphasis on hope and too little emphasis on gratitude. I mean, the, the mm. cargo may have already come. The cargo has come. We're here. We're conscious beings. We're conscious beings of a type whose consciousness is derived from our um, social nature. We are, we, we are a social being conscious of each other's consciousness and uh, conscious of each other's love, and uh, w when we're when we're doing it right, so the cargo has already come, and if if we can be grateful for that, we just have more gratitude sometimes than hope. Then we're not going to be let down by our uh, perceptions that maybe the cargo hasn't arrived yet. It it's here. Being is the cargo. It's the biggest cargo, and consciousness of that being is, is what makes us human. So the original cargo cult, 
as they told the story from the gen one generation to the next, they put expectations into the next generation. And those expectations were not what you just said. It's not the cargo is here. It's the cargo is gone. And I think the same thing we could see in the area of Christianity. It's almost as if there's this ideal that is being passed on from one generation to this to the next generation, this promise of a, of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, that is so, that people so focus on that I think what you're saying is true, is they forget that the cargo is already here. And I wonder sometimes if there's almost this feeling of disloyalty to no longer hold that dream. So, for example, imagine if, if some young woman said, I mean, that lived on this island said, um, you know, I think the, the cargo is already here. I mean, how, how's, how's that going to fly with the rest of the group? Yeah, it's, it's going to depend upon a whole lot of, of factors. It would depend upon, uh, I guess it would depend upon the, the, the woman. I mean, you, can, you could imagine it. Suddenly she would become uh, uh, a new uh, prophetess or, or, or something. Uh, what or, was that? There was a movie about that, The Whale Rider. Do you remember that? I don't remember. Oh, that it was one. a young girl who was, who was the obvious leader, just a teenage, twelve-year-old, I think. Um, and her father was obsessed with her. Her grandfather was obsessed with his sons becoming the chief mm. and succeeding him as the chief, and he kind of ignored the fact that this person was an extraordinary leader that he had as his his nuisance, what he considered his nuisance granddaughter. And she eventually, uh, just by her personality and her, her will, um, demonstrated that she's the chief yeah. and uh, you're, you're not going to go where you want to go into the future until you start recognizing that she is your chief. And so they did. Over the last couple of years, there was an article that appeared in Christianity Today, and which, which tends to be leaning left in the evangelical world. What was amazing was the title of the article had the idea of, how, why do we no longer talk about the second coming? For those Christians who are evangelical, the second coming of, of Jesus is still primary. It's there in their belief system. My question is, 2,000 years, that's a long time to wait. How can the credibility of Christianity remain when this cargo cult idea, some would say this myth of a second coming of Jesus, continues to be propagated and taught. How does Christianity exist? Well, if everybody adopts that idea, then it doesn't. But fortunately, I think um, it's a minority position. The, the idea that it's... The, the, the literal truth of the Bible is, a, I think, a fading... Uh, 
idea. I don't, but I may be wrong. No, I think, I, I think I you're think, right. And I, but Christianity goes on. And I don't know, in an era of postmodernism, post-structuralism, uh, the, the words may be true, we just don't understand the words. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not as hung up on it. But. So if you, you were exposed to the idea of a second coming as a child, it sounds like what you just said, the, you're not hung up on this idea of a, a literal second coming of Jesus. You believe that the cargo is already here, and it's a frame of mind shift from that of hoping for something in the future, for gratitude what is currently in the present. Is that then for you enough? When you think about what our world, what our nation will be for the next generation or the next generation. Do you believe that that frame of mind, that the cargo is already here, gratefulness is the key, do you believe that is enough? Do you believe that can bring about a renewed sense of unity and equality with throughout our world? I think it could I don't think it's going to. I don't see it. I don't see much reason to think it will. I I don't. I don't have a great perspective on the whole thing because I'm sort of addicted to sports, and and so I listen to a lot of sports radio, and it's just unless you win the championship, unless you're in the a first ballot Hall of Famer, unless you're the number one out of a billion participants. Your life is meaningless. I mean, you are you are a loser, and there that's that's what the media is all about is identifying the losers in life. And I see that on the evening news on on PBS at least, uh, uh, and certainly Fox and CNN, MSNBC is is just who are the losers of today? Who are the mm. people that didn't live up to our expectations today? And uh, I mean, I don't know. They don't seem to have much of an interest in, in uh, let's hearing the other side. Let's hear the other side. Let's try to figure what the other side is really telling us. Yeah. So in some way, you could even say that here in Phoenix, uh, a cargo cult is built around the NBA basketball. Right now it is. And for Bo- me. Yeah. And Booker, <laughs> and Booker is in, and Chris Paul are the messiahs. I'd, I'd, or we hope we keep yeah, our fingers crossed. I'd throw all the starters in that, but yeah, but yeah, but sure. they're the ones that that yeah, we're sure. seeing. And, and Williams, you have to bring in the coach too. Yeah, that he these are the ones that gave a sense of hope. And it's amazing to me how again it goes back to this almost this idea of deficiency. We don't have enough, and we're always looking for something that will give us more. And so if if it's a basketball team that will generate more revenue, that will bring about more um, attraction to the city of Phoenix and the state of Arizona, then that is all good. It's almost as if, like you were saying, it's instead of seeing the joy of the sport or the joy of the moment, it's always looking for something more that will bring about better. And I think that's what I loved about this piece in the monologue, where it talks about, it's like he said, people are just always waiting. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah, and that's, that's why. Like. And that's why I added in at the very um, when I was editing this, I added in this idea that I think the time comes when people are eventually are waiting to die. I mean, I, I have visited. I recall visiting a woman one time who I think was like 101. And as I was getting ready to leave, I asked her, I said, uh, would you like me to pray for anything for you? And she said, yes. And I mean, just very, very um, set face looked at me and said, pray that I die. I mean, she had lived so long and was ready. Sure, sure. And now she was ready to literally die. And I think that's what I enjoyed about reading um, parts of this monologue. And as we, uh, I adapted it for, for myself, was that that really is the key. That if we're always waiting for something, then we're really never experiencing the gratitude and the realization. I, I love that idea that the cargo is already here. I mean, to me, that's so. If you're a, a betting man, and now that we have uh, sports betting in in this in the state, if you were a betting man, what do you think? Would you place any wager at all on a literal second coming of Jesus? No, not at all. Well, I don't bet. But if you were, you'd put nothing down. No. So, if someone, if you met someone that said. To he, you, he may he may have already come, he may be coming every day, and we wouldn't know him. Right now, in our economy, in our society, our culture, we wouldn't recognize him. He wouldn't. He'd be down on Skid Row. He was on Skid Row. I mean, he was the he was one of the scum of the earth at the time, and that's how he was described in the Bible. And and uh, we don't. Those guys are losers. We don't want those guys. We want an Oprah. We want somebody who's bringing in the cash. You just gave me the perfect ending. You really did. Because I think there are, is a growing number of Christians who believe what you just said. I remember asking this older minister in a mainline church, I said, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? And looked at me straight faced and said, I never knew we left. And I think that's what you just said, is that the Jesuses are among us all the time. And if we have the eyes to see, we can find these Jesuses in the most unlikely places. It's just what we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. I agree. So, Ken, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope my voice carried. Oh, yeah. Um, it's hard. Yeah, no, you did excellent. This okay. is... Um, you all all those experiences and trials definitely uh, prepared you for this moment. <laughs> but thank you. I greatly appreciate it. And I want to thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, please do me a favor. Uh, hit like either on YouTube, Facebook, or whatever social media or podcast that you're listening to. And share it with a friend. Because here we are trying to create an environment where... We will continue to look at the great questions of the 21st century. Thank you again for your time. Have a great week and take care of yourself.